Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Friends, where we discuss various topics. This live stream may discuss trauma of all sorts to include all types of abuse. Viewers and listeners may find it unsettling and triggering. The guests on our live streams reflect a diverse set of values, morals, and ethics that may not reflect the morals, values, and ethics of the Misfit Amish. Furthermore, if this live stream causes you distress, please seek support from your trusted folks and qualified mental health professionals as needed. You may also always seek listening until you're able to listen again. With that being said, I'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers for bringing us this production today. And I'd like to welcome Kenneth to the stage. Good morning, Kenneth. Good morning. How are you today? Oh, Quite, quite well, uh, thank you. Uh, just been taking it easy, getting prepared for this uh, interview. But uh, Sundays are a mix for me now. I sometimes work in the shop. Uh, sometimes I take the day off uh, working on letters or my, my autobiography. But of course, I was preparing for this. So here I am. You're writing an autobiography? Yes. Oh, boy. Well, before we really get into it, can you give us a little bit of your background so that people understand where you're coming from and what perspective you bring? Well, first and foremost, uh, people need to know that I was not raised Amish. Uh, I was a convert from my teenage years into the Anabaptist faith, or some would say sector cult. Uh, I was initially born as a Luther, little Lutheran boy uh, in Northern Virginia, and then at the age of seven, six or seven, my parents jumped ship and went to a Pentecostal church. So that's where I spent most of my formative years in the Pentecostal church. Uh, the denomination was called the Assemblies of God, if you've heard of them. Uh, they're one of the biggest, yeah, they're one of the biggest uh, Pentecostal denominations in the country. Uh, so that was, that was sort of my formative years. Uh, it was uh, it, it, I, as I speak with my sister, who never was Amish, um, we've discussed it and, and realized that while Pentecostalism is much more milder as far as separation from the world, as it were, in dress and, and lifestyle, it still is a very insular group that, that brings you into a sort of a group uh, uh, cult awareness like you're you're the true saved people of god the holy spirit filled uh, believers that will be taken up in the rapture and all the other people that are not born again are are going to go to hell and so your mission is to evangelize the world and try to get as many into the fold as possible into your evangelical uh concepts and i feel like that that was sort of a springboard for me who was nature to want to take things to the full extent that I could, that when I was approached by my older brother about the Mennonite and Anabaptist faith, when I was around 15, uh, that it really, uh, that I was fertile ground for that radicalization. Uh, he would come to my room in the, in the night, in the evening time, when they come to visit, he's much older than I am. He's 14 years older than I am. And, um, he would come to my room and discuss the confusion of churches and how that God has a one true church that follows the, the strict teachings of the Bible 
And that's the only way that we're going to ever get to heaven and not with these lukewarm, uh, mediocre churches, which he felt even the Pentecostals, of course, were too much. He was he was at the time a part of what we call the Holderman Mennonite Church. Uh, you may have heard of them before. Yes, I'm, I'm familiar with um, some of them. I've actually, um, I have some friends who were raised in, Holderman, in the Holderman Mennonite Church. I'm a yeah. little familiar. Yeah. Yeah. They, I, I do have a question. Have you ever heard of apostolic Pentecostal churches? Uh, yes, I have, but I know very little about them. Okay. I, I just wondered because... I, I guess like what I'm hearing, it it sounds familiar to what I've heard from people who went to the apostolic Pentecostal churches. Mm. Well, again, we we I, I think that aren't the apostolic Pentecostal churches a little bit more strict as far as they had dress codes? Yes, they had yeah, very strict dress codes. We had very little of that. Uh, we were a city uh, or yeah, an urban uh, assemblies of God. So we didn't get into some of the more radical holy roller type actions and dress restrictions were almost, I mean, I think the uh, woman could wear just about anything. The head covering wasn't even there. I do remember one older lady that was in her seventies that still wore a small little doily on the top of her head, but she soon discarded that after that she got into the speaking in tongues and the Holy spirit, uh, phenomena or Holy Ghost, as we would say it in that time. Uh, so that was a, that was fading out. And, and yeah, it was, it was more, just more modern altogether. Later, my parents moved to Strasburg, Virginia, which was a country town in the Shenandoah Valley. And they attended a small country assembly of God church. And that was more, a bit more Holy Roller type uh, situation that was, more more stagnant than what we had in the in the city assembly of God. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but but I I was I was deeply uh, uh, moved by uh, my brother's. Uh, he was very influential to me. He was a very charismatic type person. I suppose you could almost say that if had he had the opportunity, he could have been a good cult leader. Uh, he was that type of a personality, and he really sucked me into it and sold me on the Holderman Mennonite. Uh, propaganda uh, and I began reading their periodicals and by the time I was 17 I was convinced this was the true one true church of God that I wanted to be a part of I should also say that uh, he introduced me to various historical writings one of which I'm sure you're familiar with is the martyrs mirror yes I still have that copy in fact this iPad is sitting on top of the martyrs mirror just to prop it up <laughs> You had to prop it up with something, right? You had to yeah. like give it some backbone, give it give it strength, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was back in 1976. Uh, I was about 16, yes, yeah, 14, 15, 16 years old. So, yeah. uh, and so, that, that was that, that was very influential to me because I didn't know I didn't know at this point what the Mennonites or Amish were from or what they were representing. I, I worried that they might be some sort of a cult. Uh, but then when I read the Martyr's Mirror, it seemed so genuine. And here were people that gave their lives, were burned at the stake or many other horrible ways that they died for their faith. And it just really inflamed my heart that I this is the type of people that I want to be part of. This is a real 
they really believed it enough to, to be willing to die for it. And I just, I just embraced that from that point on and became a very dedicated uh, follower within that realm. Okay. And so then like you mentioned something like you were, you were brought up in a evangelical type setting to believe you had to go out to the and to the world and save everybody so then didn't you tell me that you joined the amish mennonite church first which amish mennonite church for those who are who are unfamiliar the amish mennonite church is is not necessarily amish and not necessarily mennonite they embrace values from both groups of people Mm-hmm. which makes them not really Mennonite and not really Amish, but they're their own flavors. And they have various types that were founded by various people. And they may not even call themselves that today. Am, am I right in saying that, Kenneth? Yeah, right. Uh, history tells us that there's been various waves of Amish Mennonites uh, back in the 1800s. There's a really good book called Tradition and Transition by Patton Yoder. And he covered the history from 1800 to 1900, which categorizes that history of how that there was at one time in this country only Mennonites and Amish Mennonites. The Amish Mennonites being those who who came out of the split in the 1700s over in Europe uh, from Jacob Amon, who split off from the main Mennonite church, which was led by Hans Reist, the Mennonite bishop at the time. And so those two groups uh, separately came over and immigrated to America for religious freedom. And they were only known as Mennonites and Amish Mennonites. Well, by the mid 1800s, there was enough uh, controversy amongst the Amish Mennonite groups themselves that there was a split. And the ones that were more liberal maintained the name Amish Mennonite. And the ones that were more conservative were dubbed the old order Amish. And that's how that began. I think there was a letter from one of the old staunch Amish bishops that said, we want to hold to the old order of things. And that's how they got that name. And then those Amish Mennonites sort of assimilated out into the more liberal Mennonite conference groups and became basically obliterated. Uh, They became absorbed into those greater, larger groups, and they basically don't exist today. Then by the 1920s, you had another split in southwestern Pennsylvania by Moses Beachy, and he formed what we now know as the Beachy Amish, uh, which is another sort of a wave of Amish Mennonites. And I call them Amish Mennonites because they often want to not call themselves Amish. They have sort of an Amish self-hatred. And so they often will drop that name from their church names. They'll go like Mennonite Maranatha Fellowship or Mennonite this, or maybe even drop the Mennonite name. But they still have Amish roots. They have that Amish flavor. The, right. And, and whereas the, the strict Mennonite church, there's a difference. When you go to a Rod and Staff Mennonite church or a Wenger Mennonite church or Horning Mennonite church, there's just a slightly different culture amongst those, those groups. And that's why I make the differentiation. So to the un, uh, unlearned or uh, unknowledgeable public, they, they don't know that difference. But once you get into it, you, you know, the, figure out these intricacies of, of the Anabaptist uh, realm. Mm-hmm. And and like to be clear, like I was taught, like because you know we we're very oratory. I was taught that the original split from the Mennonite Church was over a difference in shunning. Absolutely, it was. And 
And I've had some people tell me that's not true. So I just wondered what you knew about that. Well, that's, that was the main cause. Uh, the, there were several points that Jacob Amon had. See, Jacob Amon was a Mennonite bishop, and, and he felt like they needed to get back to the old ground and foundation, or alte grund and fundament. Uh-huh. Uh, and the, the Mennonites by that time had dropped the, the shunning, the strict shunning. They had, uh, the only shunning that they did was if a member was excommunicated, they would shun them from the communion table, but not in daily life. And mm -hmm. also they, they had ceased practicing feet washing. And I don't know, I think they might have dropped the holy kiss as well. And so Jacob Amon wanted to institute a restoration of those practices, and especially the strict shunning. And also he began to become really anal about the various points of dress mm -hmm. and lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And it was, a real, it was a real mess for a time. He actually, after he made the split, he realized he had done wrong. And he tried to make amends and make peace with the Mennonite ministers. But by that time, they wouldn't have, didn't want to have anything to do with him. They felt he was a troublemaker. So he did the radical thing of excommunicating himself to try to make peace with them. But it still didn't work. And so it ended up being mm -hmm. two separate groups, distinct groups in time. Right. Right. And, and very clearly, like, so then you joined this Amish Mennonite church. And where did you, because it's my understanding, you had a journey through various Anabaptist churches, right? Right, right. Well, I, I like I said, I initially was headed for the Holderman Mennonites, but I got headed, I got stopped in that point because my brother, by the time I moved to Wisconsin to a Holderman Mennonite congregation or settlement, he was in trouble with them himself and was later excommunicated because they were, during the 1970s, they were having a, a, a period of cleansing throughout their whole membership to try to get make sure everybody was towing the line and especially that they were confessing that this was the one true church among all other churches. And he had actually come to the point where himself he had doubts and he could no longer confess that they were the one true church. He was more open to minded to all sorts of Amish Mennonites that had the same general confession. And, but they couldn't tolerate that. So they excommunicated him. And I just began to see this was not right. So I said, enough is enough. And I uh, left and started my journey visiting various groups, uh, particularly down in Tennessee because of a periodical that was written and still is in print called The Timely Truth, which was written by the, the Tennessee Mennonites, a very strict, about the most strictest Mennonite car driving church that you can find in, in the whole world, as far as I know. Uh, they, they're very strict black cars. They tear off the radio antennas if they still have them. Uh, some don't allow hubcaps. Their their women's head covering is very very close. It almost covers the entire hair, and uh, men wear hats. Uh, they look a lot like the Amish, but they're a little different. They have schlitthose, which means the uh, zipper pants, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, their their beards are more trim and short. They they don't they don't uh, require that your beards be untrimmed. Uh, so, but, but, but in, uh, in many ways, they're more strict than the Amish because they keep everything within their own group and they, because they can drive, they don't have to hire drivers and they can keep tabs on everybody a lot, a lot, even closer than the Amish. So it's, it's a very, very, um, actually very dangerous group in my opinion at this time. So, but I, I didn't, I didn't stay with them. I, I dabbled around in a few other groups. I dabbled with the Hoover Mennonites, which was a little clan there in Tennessee 
And they're the most strict of all groups that I know of. They're stricter than even the Schwarzenegger Amish in that they don't allow any uh, engines whatsoever on their properties or in their operations. So everything is done by hand or horsepower, or you don't do it. And uh, I thought I was going to join with them, but my brother succeeded in derailing me. And I ended up joining, going up, traveling up to Philadelphia, New York, which is way up in northern New York State and found a little church called Philadelphia Christian Fellowship, which was a branch of the Melita Fellowship, which was principally an Amish Mennonite church. There's most of the people at Amish background. And they had left, a lot of them had left the Amish during a, a, a time of, un, um, uh, can you say a time of um, unrest. unrest? Unrest amongst the Amish. And they have a special yeah. rule, have a special rule that when there's unrest, you can, you can leave without the ban. Right. You're you're talking about um von et Enish. Yeah. Yeah. So the church couldn't get to they, they couldn't have peace, so they couldn't have um communion, they couldn't right. have any like they couldn't conduct any church business because the church could not come to an agreement on those things. Correct. Um unrest often leads to a church split, Hinda. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's basically it. So that's where so. the fellowship churches were born out of. And then from them came other groups like the charity churches and so forth. But uh, that's what I joined and went through. I was uh, 19 going on 20 by that time. And I went through instruction class. Uh, we were all English, but most of them could speak the Pennsylvania Dutch because they were all Amish background. I couldn't. I, I never learned it at that time. Uh, but we went through the... Uh, 18 Articles of Faith. We had uh, another booklet that we used. I can't remember quite what it was. It wasn't quite the same as most Amish and Mennonite churches use, but it, it covered all the doctrines and, and requirements. And then I was baptized. Uh, I had been infant baptized by the Lutheran Church. I had been immersed by the Pentecostal Church. But by the time I got to the Anabaptist Church, I felt like my baptism that I had in the previous times were invalid because it wasn't part of the true true christian church so i was more than happy and wanted to be baptized and they were willing to do that so just, that was my third third baptism i just i just have to ask was the third time the charm was that the mm -hmm. one true baptism well no not really <laughs> i mean Oops. i mean i mean not to me now i mean as far as i'm concerned it's all it's all a religious uh uh propaganda and and yeah. structure and culture so we have a question. The instruction class is learning behavior. Um, it's, yeah, it's basically learning the doctrines of the church. Uh, it goes through the, what they call the 18 articles of faith, which were a, a set of agreements that the churches made back in the 1600s in, 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 in uh, Holland and other places, Germany. That was an attempt to unite all the Anabaptist churches into one united church of God. And those carry the basic principles like they believe in God, they believe in the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, they believe in uh, the virgin birth, they believe in uh, the, the patriarchy, the, the principles of husband, wife, marriage, uh, the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the just, the damnation of the unjust, uh, all those basic principles sort of follows the Apostles' Creed, but in more detail. 
Um, can I just ask something? So when sure. you're talking about they believe in the patriarchy, like, wasn't it like, you know, God, the ministry, then the father or the patriarch in charge of your family, and then the mother and then the children? Yes. Kind of like the the umbrella of protection that, that is like familiar with, with like IFB teachings, things like that. Yes. Well, it comes from the New Testament, the, the teachings of the Apostle Paul. He said, for I will have you know that the head of the man is Christ and the head of the head of, uh, of the woman is man. Uh, and so that that order of headship is established right in the uh, New Testament, which many modern churches ignore. Mm hmm. But also, like, I think it's interesting because you're talking about a church that was like a very different church from the type of I was born into an Abe Troyer church. And then I went on yeah. to live in four different Old Order Amish churches. Mm -hmm. So like, when when I was baptized, like we had, I believe it was nine instruction classes. And mm -hmm. when we were baptized, we were baptized on our knees in front of the church. We had to confess that we believed in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. There were three questions that I remember of, but I don't remember what the second question was. I do remember that the third question was, um, we had to promise that we wouldn't tell church business to outsiders, to anybody who's not baptized in the church. Did y'all have anything like that? Not that I can remember, no. Okay. Well, we have a question for you. Would you call yourself a chameleon? Was it easy for you to fit into different groups or hard? Uh, you know, when I go through my story rapidly, it, it would appear that I was maybe a chameleon. But this was over a period, my journey is over a period of 40 years, four decades. So uh, there was a point in time for several years that I was sort of in limbo trying to find after I in other words after I had given up on the Holman church and that one true church doctrine I became open to other Anabaptist churches but within the Anabaptist framework I was never interested in Baptist or Methodist or any other group it was the Anabaptist church that I still held to as the one true church but which one which one should I go to and I was very confused uh, there were some churches that uh, had a strong emphasis on rules and regulations, which we know in German as Adnung, um, or Ordnung would maybe be the high German way of pronouncing that. Uh, and then there were other churches that that believe you should just be led of the Holy Spirit and, and it should not be any uh, rules and regulations or church standards. And that was very confusing to me. And I prayed earnestly. I fasted, didn't get any good answers. And of course, I know now why, but but uh, I didn't at the time. I was very confused. And that's when I finally, after a series of mistakes and backtracking, I finally ended up with the, this Amish Mennonite Fellowship in tennis, uh, uh, sorry, in upstate New York. And by that time, I was convinced this is where I wanted to set my roots down. I didn't want to be in confusion any longer. This is where it was going to be my home. This is going to be my church, my brothers and my sisters. And I was so solid in that, that they accepted me, took me through in instruction class and baptism. And later I dated one of the, the girls, not there in that congregation, but down in Pennsylvania. And we, we married. And then we, we set up housekeeping there in Philadelphia, New York area. And that's where we lived for the next about nine years together.
So I was a dedicated convert and I really wanted to uh, show and prove to others that I was not unstable, that I would be faithful. And, and I think I proved that, although we didn't remain there. And that's simply because that there was a division in the church. Uh, our deacon left and moved to Tennessee to the Tennessee churches, an ultra strict Mennonite church that was very attracted to the ultra conservative. And we nearly moved with them several after several years after we married, but we were given counsel by the deacon there in Tennessee that his dad always said that when there's church trouble that you should wait until the dust settled before making any decisions. So we took that as good counsel, went back home to New York and ended up staying another seven years before the church had more trouble. And we had to have, as you would understand, friend Adina or other ministers come in and bishops to try to sort the problems out. They had to have um, visiting ministry. They had to um, send out a, a, a call for assistance to ministry Correct. that affiliated yeah. with your group, but yes. wasn't in your group necessarily. That's correct. Yes. And that's the way that, that, that some church troubles are, are settled when the home church itself cannot seem to get it together. And at that point, they, they concluded after interviewing all the families in the settlement that we should all disband and, and move to other more established congregations. And we took that as a sign from the Lord that we were to move and move especially to Tennessee where, where I was more inclined to go. Uh, I think if it had been my wife, she may have stayed with the main group, but I would be in the head and leader of the home. I was the one that made the final decision. So, you know, that's all I can say about that. I'm not saying it was right, but it was the way that that worked in that setting. They had you believing that it was your job to make that decision, regardless of what your wife thought. That was your your final call. Right. It's not that we didn't. Go ahead. And you can you can consider her advice, but even if like y'all disagree, you are the one that is responsible on judgment day. So you are the one who had to make that decision. Yes, that's very true. That's very true. Uh, yeah, I'm, I feel pretty ashamed about it now, but it is, that's the way we were taught. So the the buck kind of stopped with me, as it were. Yeah. So then you you moved to those Tennessee churches, right? Yes, and we were there for another um, another eight uh, nine about nine years, most of a decade there. And while there, I became increasingly more conservative in my viewpoints and remembered my association with the Hoover Mennonites that had the horse and buggy lifestyle without any engines. And there was a number of factors involved. I, I did like the church there in Tennessee. They were quite strict, which fit my concepts. Uh, but I was also visiting with these Hoover Mennonites. They were about a two hour drive away. Uh, I had a friend in the Tennessee church, Mennonite church that had a friend in the Hoover Mennonite church. And he actually encouraged me to go visit them. Uh, this, of course, was not making my wife happy, but again, I was the spiritual leader and I was trying to seek the, the best way for my family. At the same time, I should say that my 
my zeal for evangelism and preaching the gospel or, or passing out tracts had diminished by that time. Uh, I had more, became more the city set on a hill type approach of Christianity, not the evangelical preaching to the gospel to all people, baptizing in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Although we did have some outreach there with the Tennessee churches. Um, but that's another story. So I, I began associating somewhat and making friends with the Hoover Mennonites once again and, and made some real direct contact. And it, it became clear to me that I wanted to wanted to join with them and move my family to an old order church. One of the reasons that drought drove me and it still is a driving force in my life. And that is that I began reading more modern Mennonite books uh, on social justice and also environmental issues. And I latched on to the environmental issues quite strongly and became what I would have called then a Christian environmentalist. I, I believe, believe that the modern practices of fossil fuel use abounding in our world was destroying the planet. And I felt like that that's not pleasing to God. In Revelations chapter 11, it says God will destroy those that destroy the earth. And I became very strongly of the opinion that we needed to stop using cars and, and as much as possible, all fossil fuel. And of course, the Hoover Mennonites having no use of engines whatsoever was like a like a, a paradise to me. And I, I envisioned some way of working together with them, but that was not going to be possible because there was uh, differences between the Tennessee churches and the Hoover Mennonites. And it made a, an impossible wall to traverse. And in the process of time, I was able to find an Amish church that the old order Amish church that didn't have engines that were actually trying to work with the Hoover Church in Southwest Virginia. And through a long series of, of struggles and meetings and many other problems, uh, the ministry in Tennessee allowed me and my family to move to the Old Order Amish in Southwest Virginia. And that's, that, that became, that, that was the beginning of my Amish journey. By that time, I was 38 years old. So see, from the time I was 19 to 38, that's a span of about 20 years before that actually happened. Um, the question on the screen says, was he won this Pentecostal? I'm not sure what they mean by that. No, I think you said, didn't you say you were like Church of God Pentecostal? Uh, Assembly I, of God. Assembly of God. Yes. Something, Yes. And then um, there was another question, what made you look for something else? And I think that was covered earlier. Um, right. Well, I visited my brother when he was with the Holman Mennonites, and I was sort of taken aback by the differences compared to the Pentecostals, where we had a lot of shouting and hallelujahs and speaking in tongues and and yet the young people could talk about the latest sports game and how the fastest cars, whereas in the Mennonites, they were much more quiet, subdued and and peaceful. And and I was already had latched on to the teaching of non-resistance, uh, not not wanting to fight and go to war and you know join the army and that type of thing. And so it, it was an appeal, appealing uh, choice for me to to join the Mennonites and and jump from the Pentecostals to the to the Mennonites. 
I was considered an outlier. The, 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 the Pentecostal people of the Assembly of God Church, they shook their heads and figured I was going off in the deep end. But I was determined to do it, and I did. Um, I think that that I can understand that. Like, it, it logically makes sense to me in some kind of way, and I don't really understand why, but it does. We have another question for you. Why do you feel bad about making that decision for your family now? Do you no longer agree with that patriarchal doctrine? Well, the latter part of the question, absolutely not. I, I think uh, the patriarchal uh, theology and process of thinking is very damaging to, uh, to uh, uh, women as a whole and disempowers them uh, from being a the full human being like they should be. So yeah, I can't, I can't make apologies for myself. I mean, or justifications for my, for my actions, but I was just following the path that most Mennonite and Amish married men make with their families. They are the leader and they feel this God given responsibility to do the best, make the best choices for their family, even if it means moving them to another more stricter or in some cases, more liberal congregation. It just all depends on the man making that final decision, which, as you said, the buck stops with us, or I said that, but you, you basically said that, you know, we are responsible to God in the end if we shepherded our, our family the way we should have. Uh-huh. That is, that is the truth. And, you know, thank you for, for explaining that you can't justify the decisions that you made, but you were prescribing to the doctrine. I think sometimes we need to understand that when we have theology and doctrine that enforces this type of belief, mm. it harms people and it disproportionately harms women and children because Absolutely. children are viewed as objects. Often they're viewed as free labor. They are used as free labor. Mm. And women don't specifically have a voice like I've often described it and you can tell me if, if you think I'm wrong in this but I've often described it as like I felt like and I still feel like what I experienced inside of those five Amish settlements is that women and girls had a voice that was given to them by the men who were the patriarchs who were in charge of us mm. and that is the only voice that we had yeah, that's true. That's very true. And and women also, if they were like school teachers in the community, they didn't get paid as much as the, the men teachers. I noticed that in the Tennessee churches, they, they got maybe half the pay. And even in that setting, I was on the school board for four years and I made the comment, I remember on a school board meeting that I think we should pay Sister Sarah Martin more than what she's getting because she was an excellent teacher for the lower grades. But for some reason, they felt like because she was a woman and didn't have a family to support, then she didn't deserve as much pay. Yeah, that it's it, it really, really is uh, sad to me. And it's no. Um, Tamara does say real quick, oneness Pentecostal does not believe in the Trinity, if that helps for clarification. Uh, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, the Assemblies of God believed in the Trinity. Yeah. Yeah. When, when we were baptized by immersion, they baptized us in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or Holy Ghost, as they would say. 
So going back to like your journey throughout these churches, you left off at like this place where you're going, you're now like going more into the old order Amish type of doctrine because you've now lost your fervor for evangelical beliefs, which believe you have to go out and save the world, right? To the most extent, there was a little bit left of me that always stuck with me. Uh, mm -hmm. I, re I remember when we had joined with the Amish in Virginia that I had uh, still some religious tracks, Anabaptist tracks, and I suggested we could put them in the produce stand for, for people to take as they came and bought produce. And the Amish said, no, we don't do that. <laughs> you know what? We don't do that. You know what I was taught? Would you like to hear that? Sure, go ahead. I was taught that, and, and I, this was even preached in our church sermons, mm -hmm. in multiple settlements, that to be born Amish is a privilege, a gift, a, a sacrament, something, right? Like, sis is Bund. And wie ich wandern aus in der Welt gehe, nimmst der Bund und nicht der Fies. How do we translate that appropriately, by the way? Well, it's like uh, you take your covenant with God or your special calling and just trample it. Yeah. So we are given a covenant because we were born Amish. It is ours. We it is a it is a gift, and we can't go out into the world otherwise we're 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 destroying that right. But yeah. I was also taught that we don't know that there are not other groups that can make it to heaven. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we don't, we're not, we're not God. We don't, we don't get to decide that any other group besides Amish people, you know, can't make it to heaven. There's mm -hmm. people in the world who are, who are probably going to make it to heaven. We just don't know. But it isn't our job to go out and, and tell them to be Amish. Because mm -hmm. the way that we shine a light is by our actions and our words and our way of dress and our way of life and all of the mm. things that it means to be old order Amish. Mm. So I like to feel like I'm shining my light, mm. which by the way, did you, did you recognize this? This, do you recognize this? Uh, what is oh, it? Look yes, of course. You, you, have, you have a, <laughs> yes, I didn't notice it till now. Yeah. That's a straight cut coat. <laughs> uh, plain, plain yep it's got the split tails and everything i used to make yeah. these wow so you're quite a seamstress because those are a work of art in my opinion you have to know how to measure and how to draft patterns mm -hmm. and how to make things yes yes anyways so like that's that's kind of like the thing though is like we didn't evangelize we didn't believe that it was our job to do that so i'm just I'm in awe. Like you went from evangelical to like Mennonites, which are, you know, they, they typically tend to do more of the tract handling. And then what did you do? Like, where did you go? Well, it was a slow evolution in mind, mind uh, concepts. I, I was more concerned about, I became extremely concerned about the slippage or the apostasy of the churches seeing how the fellowship churches were getting more and more conformed to the world. I saw that, how that they, the dresses got shorter, the beards got trimmed, more trimmed, uh, pants got more tight. Uh, I remember one 
young man. He, I think he was baptized. He and I were both baptized at the same time at Philadelphia Christian Fellowship. And I later met him at some wedding in Pennsylvania. And when he turned, he had, he had broad fall pants on, but when he turned around to walk away, his pants were so tight, I could see his buttocks just moving up and down, up and down, up and down as he walked. And I just shook my head and said, that's what happens when you follow the worldly patterns. And I didn't you really went there. <laughs> Are you, yeah. have you, have you ever heard of like uh, some of my ex JW friends, they talk about a elder or a governing body member, Antonio or Tony, they call him Tony often. Um, he, he used to like give talks on like tight pants and how terrible they were. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We had lots of sermons about those things in the fellowship churches, but of course the trends were so strong. They, the ministers could only do so much. And that's why some people split off and went their separate ways. That's why I ended up following our former deacon who went, who had split off because of those reasons and moved to this ultra conservative midnight church in Tennessee. When I saw these things happening, I said, this is the handwriting on the wall. We've got to get out of here or my children are going to be taken up by these worldly uh, trends that are, you know, sweeping the church away. And so I, I tried to find a safe haven for my family in an ultra conservative church. And it was an ultra conservative Mennonite church. I mean, they are the most strictest, I can't imagine any other group as strict as these Mennonite, uh, Tennessee Mennonite that I was a part of. I have one more comment about the pants. Okay. And and also, I think it's true. I often find that I, I can't relate to some of the Mennonite churches. Um, somebody asked about Eastern Pennsylvania Mennonite Church. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not. Yes, but they're pretty. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I lived in an older Dramish settlement where the men did not wear suspenders. And instead, their pants, their broadfall pants, were supposed to be tight enough to hold the pants up when they were. With a walked. drawstring. With a drawstring. Oh, no. Oh. Oh, no. No. You had to make those pants so, tight enough. So, so it wasn't Nebraska Amish? No. Ah, that's it, interesting. It was Ohio? old or was it? In no, Ohio? it was in Pennsylvania. Oh, now that's a um, new one for me. But, but see, but that's the thing is like, there's so many different sects of like yeah. Anabaptists. And when you really get into it and you start understanding, like overall we have the Anabaptist umbrella, but yes. we can't really overgeneralize and we have to be cautious about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyways, thank you for, for hearing that because I find it very interesting that you were absolutely abhorred by it. And yet it was like a fundamental thing about the clothing that some of the people like had in one of the settlements I lived in. Like that's. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. That's... I learned, learned something new and I thought I knew everything. <laughs> Oh, wait, can you learn from me, though? I should be able to. Not according to the church doctrine. Well, that's bullshit. <laughs> I had to go there. Anyways, continue. So then you went where after the, the Tennessee Mennonite churches and everything? Well, as I mentioned, I, I had this fascination with the Hoover Mennonite Church and wanted to actually move my family to the settlement, big settlement in Scottsville, Kentucky. 
but that was a no-go. Uh, the Tennessee churches had animosity towards the Hoovers, and the Hoovers had animosity towards the Tennessee churches. They both had excommunicated members from both sides, so it was a big, big wall. And finally, one mm -hmm. of the Hoover Mennonites who saw my plight, Ernest Rhodes was his name, he said, why don't you uh, visit the, the new settlement starting up in southwest Virginia by a, a bishop named Sam Chupp? I'd never heard of him before, but I, I was desperate. I wanted to get out of the Tennessee churches in the worst way. I wanted to move my family to an old order horse and buggy group. So I went up and visited and ended up pleading with that bishop to help me get out of this sticky situation. He ended up riding with me back in my van with another fellow minister to have a meeting with our Tennessee ministers and see if they could, if he could convince my ministers to release us because the Tennessee churches are strict enough that you just can't up and leave. You just can't move away. You have to have church permission. And if you leave without church permission, you're going to be put into the ban. Mm -hmm. Cause uh, you have to seek your peace where you lost it. Correct. And you can't, you can't have peace in the new church that you're going to unless you have peace from the church that you're exiting from, unless those two churches do not affiliate. Then there can be exceptions made. So if they don't affiliate with each other, sometimes there might be exceptions made, but it is very rare. Very rare. Very rare indeed. Yes. So anyhow, uh, Sam was a master of, uh, of, of negotiations and ended up making negotiations where that I had to make a few confessions and they had to give. So it's a give and take. And finally, we were released after a lot of a lot of uh, hoops and ladders. We were finally released. And that, again, was another decision that my my wife would have preferred to have stayed in Tennessee. She didn't want to go back to the old orders. Her, her, her father was raised in the old order Amish church and had been excommunicated and she had experienced the shunning of his family towards him uh, as she grew up. And so she had some not so good opinions of the old order Amish. So this was something she did not really want to do. But again, after I passed all the tests in the Tennessee churches for being able to be released, they felt like it was her responsibility to submit to me as the head of the family. And, uh, but it did have a, that definitely did have a detrimental effect to our marriage relationship. It, our marriage relationship was never the same after that. I, I don't think that she could really ever accept the, the old order way of life. Uh, so that's one element, but I was uh, very strong in my, my feelings that this is what I should do for my family. And we, we did move them to that settlement in Virginia. So we have like two questions for you. Okay. One says, my 85-year-old father still wears suspenders, but then again, I've seen kids at my 4,000-strong public school also wearing suspenders. So is my father now worldly since it's now the fashion? <laughs> um, no, I don't think so. Uh, that's just an artificial... Uh, uh differentiation that the plain churches make is is her old 85 year old father amongst the amish or mennonites or i believe perhaps mennonites yeah yeah uh, that's that's just a don't know how to answer that question 
I don't know either because like that also goes into like what does it mean to be plain which I'm hoping we get to at the end of this um we have another question that asks, do you think these churches were well-intentioned when established? And it was the people who took things to the extreme as if the evil of absolute power corrupted it as it often does in many situations. Hmm. I think as a whole, these splits and divisions often are guided by visionary men. Men tend to be more visionary and women tend to be more practical. That's a general uh, categorization amongst these plain churches. In fact, I heard one minister joke one time that had we followed the women, we would all still be in Europe today. Oh, wow. Wow. In that's words, a joke? Yeah, that's a joke. In other words, the, 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 the women are more practical. They more pragmatic. Men are more visionary. Uh, they, they look ahead and they, they envision something for the future and then they make it happen regardless of what the women think. Okay, but is that really true that women can't be visionary? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think there's any difference. Uh, I think women can be as much visionary as men. But we had this distinct opinion that women were the weaker vessel. The, the, the New Testament scriptures, the Apostle Paul and Apostle Peter, both teach that the women are the weaker vessel. And that it's because of the women that sin fell upon the earth because the, the Adam wasn't deceived. But Eve being deceived uh, took of the fruit and sinned and therefore uh, she needs to be submissive to her husband and and not be allowed to be in a place of leadership that's just clear new testament teaching so you can't blame the anabaptist groups or any other offshoots of them for taking that position because if you're going to be a bible believing christian you have to follow those teachings uh, i know that there's various interpretations that try to uh, 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 make that softer but it's it's in my opinion, it's pretty damn clear. And of course, I don't agree with it anymore, but I'm just trying to state that, that that's what the Bible says if you're going to be a Bible-believing Christian. And that's what creates this, this paradigm or this, this, this structure that we see, especially in the Anabaptist churches, but also in other churches like the Baptist churches. They have their patriarchal set up. In fact, Christian nationalism that's taking over this country frighteningly is is also very patriarchal mm -hmm. if not and not involved in white supremacy as well which that's a whole different subject um, but, so what i'm but, hearing from you is that you believe that the source the the ultimate source of this doctrine and this theology comes directly from the new testament absolutely yes okay, okay. thank you for clarifying that and then didn't you go join like an older Amish church eventually after you went to like the Virginia type that, the they, churches? Like they, they, they were old order Amish. Yeah. yeah they were, I want to be were, clear. Yes. The, 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 the group, the Amish in Parisburg, Virginia are old order Amish completely. Uh, absolutely. They, but at the time when we joined them, they were sort of flirting with the Hoover Mennonite Church. They, they were entertaining the idea of becoming united with the Hoover Mennonite Church, which ended up never happening because the Hoover Mennonites are more like the Holdemans in that they believe that they have the one true way. And if the Amish would have united with the Hoover Mennonites, they could never have allowed their 
their fathers and other relatives who were, say, in the ministry uh, to come and, 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 and they couldn't, uh, what's the English word? I'm thinking. Oh, so they, okay. So they didn't, because if they were to um, affiliate with the Holdeman Mennonite or become connected to the Holdeman Mennonite church, who, would have who, 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 Hoover sorry, Mennonite. Hoover, my yes. bad. So if they were affiliated with the Hoover Mennonite church, then at that point, the older Amish churches would have disaffiliated with them. And That's what would correct. have happened is the people who came, like if, if you get married in, in an older Amish church, it is customary for visiting ministry, like a bishop. Like if you have an uncle, I had an uncle who was a bishop. If I would have gotten married in the older Amish church and he would have attended my wedding, it could have been customary for the bride and the groom to ask that visiting bishop to marry us and if that would have happened that that affiliation with the hoover mennonite church would have happened they would have no longer affiliated with any of the older Amish churches and that visiting yeah. bishop would not have been allowed to um perform the ser wedding ceremony or perform you know um do the preaching or any of that at the weddings or at the funerals or even if they just visited like you know, they, they, the visiting older Amish ministry would not even have been recognized as ministry. Exactly. And that was just too big of a pill for them to swallow finally when it came right down to it. And at that point, they drew away from the, the considerations and affiliation with the Hoover Mennonites and decided to go more mainstream Amish. Mm hmm. And they then began adopting some of the practices of the old order mainstream Amish, such as engines to wash their clothing, chainsaws. Uh, we see we were operating with with just hand powered or pedal powered or horse powered machines and shops. Everything was done just like the Hoovers because we were trying to conform to their ordinance or standard so that they could eventually accept us but once the decision was made that we can't do that because of the strict what, what you just explained uh then they kind of backtracked and decided well let's just not be so different from the rest of the amish let's be more mild in our approach and they began to adopt these things and that's where there was a split and a number of families from our particular settlement there was two settlements seven miles apart in in our particular settlement due to a variety of problems uh, they all decided to move up to Hillsboro, Wisconsin, to the Old Order Amish churches in Hillsboro. Now you're getting in my territory. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and 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 they they really wanted us to move with them. Uh, my some of their young people were really good friends with my young people, our children, and they they really tried to get us to be convinced to move. But I was really dead set on not having engines. And and I remember one night I had such a trouble sleeping. I couldn't sleep at night. And I walked down the hill to my neighbor, Sammy Yoder. And I expressed to Sammy, what should I do? I, I can't have peace. I, I can't get peace. I just can't sleep at night. And he said, well, um, why don't you consider moving to Rich Hill, Missouri? My wife has relatives in Rich Hill, Missouri. Now, Rich Hill, Missouri is a settlement of the Hoover Mennonite Church. And the reason that Sammy Yoder had a wife from that background is because his family, the John Yoder family, had a big history of trying to unite with the Hoover Mennonites and had actually lived in Scottsville for a number of years. That's the main enclave of the Hoover Mennonites in Scottsville, Kentucky. 
And he stayed there long enough that some of his children grew up and married into the Hoover Mennonite Church. And Sammy was one of them. He married a Masman girl. And uh, uh, then they eventually, when the Sam Chup group started up in Southwest Virginia, this was sort of a big compromise between the Hoovers and the Amish and Sammy and almost all his family, his brothers, Eli, John, and others moved up to Parisburg to, to start with this new fledgling uh, hybrid Amish church. <clears throat> and of course, then we moved up there and we became a part and he was my neighbor. Well, when he saw my struggle and he knew of the Hoover Mennonites, he had lived there, he had been a member with them. And he knew that I was dead set to not have the engines and such. He said, why don't you just consider Rich Hill, Missouri? And I thought, well, that might be an idea. So we took a long bus ride by Greyhound all the way out to Rich Hill, Missouri, visited there. And I was just enamored with the, the group there. They were smaller than Scottsville. They didn't have like 100 plus families. They had more like 25 families. So it was a more smaller home family type church. And yeah, we, it was again my decision. And I made the decision to move. So we were the only family other than one family to move back to the main settlement in, in Whitegate or Parisburg area, uh, uh, Ben and Mary Troyer. Uh, you might even know them because he had some in and outs with a bit with the Troyer Amish, the uh, down in down in uh, Tennessee. But um, Ben and Mary moved back to the the original settlement, and we moved to Missouri, and everyone else moved to Hillsborough, Wisconsin. Uh, Sammy Yoder, Eli Yoder, uh, Chris Spiha, um, so many. They all they all Kenneth Kenneth Borntrager. Ken, Kenneth, I used to go to, they used to take me to a chiropractor in Hillsboro, Wisconsin, and I'm a oh. chiropractor, and there were rumors about that man, and when the rumors came out, like, he was supposed to fix, like, the PTSD that I have from being abused, mm. and when the rumors came out of his inappropriateness with women and girls, and I was no longer taken back to him. At least I'm grateful for that. But still, like that's 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 my familiarity with Hillsborough, Wisconsin, Amish. Now, was was he a Amish chiropractor? Yes. Oh, uh, okay. Yes, I can I can literally see the room that it was in that he would take me in. Mm. And like he would take young girls. I wasn't older than 13, 14, 15. And he would take young girls in that room by themselves and not allow their parents in there either. So I digress though. That's mm. you're talking about that. And I'm just like, I know we've talked about this. Is like you can be a part of these groups and be completely oblivious mm. because you don't know, right? No. So, anyways, so then you went to Missouri. Yes, and we joined and became full members with the Hoover Mennonite Church out there. Uh, my wife, again, was very concerned about that move, uh, but she had this small consolation that maybe this would, that everything would stop there, that we wouldn't need to move any further to make major moves and that this could be our church home. And she, she tried to really fit in. I, I give her that, that credit. She did her best. Uh, however, 
as much as we liked it there, uh, my children became, that were teenagers and others were getting into the teenage years. For some reason, we got on the wrong side of the tracks with the group there. And that's hard to explain, but there was another family, a Brubaker family there that also was one of those more lowly and despised families amongst the church members. You, you expressed that. I, I, I heard you express that somewhere, not with me in this interview, but somewhere else that I watched that there's levels of, of families. There's the, the higher ups, the elites, then you have sort of the middle class and then you have the lower class. Well, yep. my children became fast friends with this lower accepted family in the church. And I really was against their association with this family because I saw what was happening. And I tried my best to keep my children away from those children. But it seemed anything I could do was just of no avail. And then as much as I was trying to fit in, uh, my, my children, as they became teenagers, began to see some of the hypocrisy there. Sadly, there was a lot of hypocrisy in that particular settlement. Uh, it was more on the area of technology, which I'll go into just briefly. They don't want to take too much time. Every spring and fall when we had, um, we had a different term. It was uh, not adnungsgame. It was, uh, it was something before grossgame, before we had communion. And they had a different term amongst them as Mennonites. I don't, it's, it escapes me now. But anyhow, it was the same basic pattern where the ministers would stand up and go over any areas that they think the church might be slipping in, mm -hmm. in the rules of, and of dress and regulation. And I remember one of the ministers strongly preaching about the use of the cell phone should never be done amongst our people. The rule there was you either... The only time you could use the phone was to go into the town and use the pay phone. And the only exception to that was in a medical or a veterinary emergency that you could use your neighbor's phone. And he even preached to the point that he felt like the cell phone was certainly and had to be an invention of Satan. The oh, problem, yeah, the problem with that is that when you take such a stand like that, then it would only be consistent to never ever touch a cell phone that almost touching a cell phone might infect you with demonic power. So you would want to stay as far away as you can from it. That would be a rational uh, uh, conclusion. However, we began noticing that in the big produce stock, I should explain that the, the lifeblood of income in this community was produce farming big time. I mean, we had like 20, 25 families and all having five to 10 acres of produce each. And we would, during the summer months, bring in hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of produce that would be sold each year. And, and, and other means of occupation were almost not allowed. You could have winter projects like a, a woodworking shop or some other harness shop or buggy shop, but that was only a sideline. You were basically required to be a, be a farmer. They didn't want to be like the Amish that they saw in more progressive communities where they were having big shops and, you know, big, big industrial machinery and really courting with the world, as it were. So they wanted to stay lowly and humble with farming. So this was a very important thing. They had to move these tons and tons of literally tons and tons of produce. And we had three markets. We had the retail market. We had the 
the peddler market where guys would come in with their trucks and pickups and vans and load up with watermelons and cantaloupes and whatever and go into the streets of Kansas City or, or uh, Joplin, Missouri and sell their, their produce. And when then we had the big contracts with the supermarket chains that would come down from Nebraska and Kansas City with their big semis and reefers, uh, refrigerated trucks, and they would back up to a dock that we made and we would load them up with tons and tons of watermelons and cantaloupes. Um, well, that took communication. And the, the ideal plan was that the, 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 the leaders of the church that were part of the manage, managing of this business were to communicate to the brokers who were standing there with their cell phones and the brokers would get on their cell phones, communicate with the big head honchos in Kansas City or somewhere in Nebraska, how many truckloads of watermelons are gonna have this week, what to expect, what, and, and, and eventually, Something broke down. Probably someone said, hey, you know, Ben to Ben Hoover, uh, the, the guy in Kansas City just wants to talk with you. Could you just talk with him a bit? So Ben begrudgingly accepts the cell phone in his hand and starts talking with the broker where this starts breaking down their wall. And before long, they're not only using the cell phone, these select men using the cell phone, but they're actually even keeping and borrowing a cell phone overnight and hiding it in the, in the office, in the drawer. And my sons knew this. And I, I, I was, I was, you know, trying to deny this, this, this couldn't happen. This is our faithful church. We don't do that type of thing. But my, my sons proved it to me one time we came in real early with a whole load of, of cucumbers or yeah, cucumbers and squash. And it was before anybody else was there, except for one other Mennonite uh, manager. His name was Wayne Maslin. And there was no peddlers there, so no other cars. It was just us with our team and wagon and, and Wayne there with, he'd come with his horse and buggy to do some office work. And we said, Wayne, uh, do we have sale for these, uh, these, this produce that we brought in? And he said, I don't know. Just, uh, just, just, I don't know, just wait. And he disappeared for about 15, 20 minutes. And of course we were busy unloading into the produce dock and washing and grading. And he came back and said, yeah, we've got sale. And that's what it struck me. How did he do that? How does he know that we have sale for these? Because there's no peddlers here. It's early in the morning. We got here first before everybody else. How does he know this? And then I had to believe my sons that they actually kept the cell phone secretly. And this just did not fly with me. I just could not, could not fathom that we would have such hypocrisy. If we as a church had made a decision and they said, we don't want the cell phone to be used. However, because of the need of the, of the community to get this produce sold, we're going to have to appoint Ben Hoover and Wayne Maslin and someone else to be the only ones that are allowed to use a cell phone. And it's for the good of the community. Actually, I would have accepted that. I would have accepted that because it would have been a, 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 an agreed position. But because they, they did it uh, contrary to the rules of the church without having an official position, it was hypocrisy, rank and clear to me. So it was it was hypocrisy, but it was also like this mentality that I've seen and experienced myself, which is like what the bishop don't know, don't hurt him. Well, the bishop knew about it. He was his own sons. Then he just didn't care because well, his sons had privilege. His sons had privilege because remember that hierarchy, that classism, I don't know, caste system, whatever you want to call it. Um, when you consider it in each church district inside of the old order Amish churches that I lived in, what they had, like, this sounds like the Hoover Mennonite church was like that. 
Mm-hmm. So you had the ministry and that was the overall, like in the ministry in the church district, they had the most amount of power. And then you had like your, your wealthy businessmen, you had the people who were, came from a good family. You had the people who were more middle-class, your lower class. And then you had the people who were just kind of like, there was always just something wrong with them. They could never do anything right. They would never meet the goalposts. Right. And if you were the child of like, this is one of the ways in which if you were the child of somebody very privileged, you would get permissions or you could get away with things you the ministry and the church would let things slide i almost went there the ministry and the church would let things slide that just nobody else if you were under the middle class you you didn't you didn't get that permission that would never have slid if you as a joined in family would have tried that what would have happened well, that's what happened with us. My that's that's why we were finally excommunicated from that church, because we uh, we actually attempted that in a to, to, to use the cell phone to establish our own produce business and had borrowed cell phones. Well, I found out later my sons had bought cell phones and I, I they didn't they kept that from me. I didn't know that. I thought it was borrowed. But uh yeah, yeah, that, uh, and, and I, I would, uh, before I go further, I'd like to say that um, once we moved to where we're here, are, are here in Maine, and the ministry was having meetings with my wife and I as to what the problem was in Missouri, why did we get into trouble with Missouri, and I explained to them this problem that I just explained to you about the cell phone, uh, the deacon asked me, why did you do that, Kenneth, why did you, well, I said, we were just following their example, but I said, why why couldn't they have made an official decision like I like I tried to outline to make it official and not just be behind people's back? And then um, Caleb, Caleb stole the bishops now. He's a bishop of the church here. He said, well, it would have caused a church split. They couldn't do that. It would cause a church split. So they had to kind of look between their eyes, uh, look between their fingers, excuse me, look between their fingers and just let it slide because they absolutely needed that communication. They had to have that communication, but they couldn't make an official ruling to allow for that, lest it would cause a split in the church. And that was the dynamics there. So of course, hold up, hold up. I'm still caught up on this. Like the, the ministry's son or the bishop's son can do this, but you and your family are not allowed to do this because now it's going to cause a split. No, not me. No, no, no. I was, what I was saying was that I thought if they would have made a church decision that we would allow certain people like Henry Maslin, Wayne Maslin, uh, Abe Hoover, Ben Hoover to, to use the cell phone and only those men, because they're trusted members of the church and from notable families, high up families, I would have, even as a nobody, as a new kid on the block, I would have accepted that because then it would be clearly known that they're using it with the approval of the church, but only they are using it. Therefore, it creates a safeguard that no one else is allowed to use it. Only those men are appointed because they're considered guardians of the church, but they have to uh, do this communication so that the, the produce stock can remain viable. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense. Okay, thank you for that. Um, JC says, kept it from you because you were a rule follower? 
I was definitely a rule follower. I was a letter of the law type person. I felt like it was my duty to submit and follow the rules. And that way I would be blessed of God and be happy. My family would be happy. So it was very unsettling when I saw this hypocrisy. There was one other point that, that unsettled me. And that is when I went to the library one time, uh, I was trying to establish a small woodworking business on the side from our produce farming. And I needed some information and I couldn't get it anymore. Uh, and I, I was trying to find a way to use the internet, but I, I knew we weren't allowed to use the internet, or at least I didn't think we were. And I went to the library and asked the librarian if she could look something up on the computer for me, because it was okay to ask somebody non-Mennonite or non-Amish to do something for us, but it wasn't right for us to do it ourselves. And when I asked her that, she said, well, the computer's over here on the table. You just go ahead and use the computer. I said, well, no, we, we don't do that. She said, well, some of your other men come in and use the computer. I was like, what? That really shook me up. That really shook me up. And I then sort of didn't know what to do. And I sort of begrudgingly said, okay, I guess, I guess maybe it's okay. And uh, I, I didn't even know the first thing of how to use a computer because you see, I left that world, the outside world when I was a teenager. And in the process of those decades, two or two decades or plus, the computers had come out. So I was approaching this from the same perspective of a person that was raised Amish or Mennonite. And I didn't know the first thing about how to use a computer. So she had to walk me through how to use a computer and I was then opened up, it opened my mind to how easy it was to search for something, even back then in the, in the, in the early 2000s. So this, this, this is what sort of broke down my convictions. And at the same time, my, my wife was also working on me to accept the use of the cell phone to some extent, which was surprising to me because I thought she was one that knew the ropes better than I did and wouldn't dare do such a thing. But uh, she got me to uh, agree to use a cell phone occasionally with a neighbor that came to buy milk and milk and eggs from us and strawberries in season. And uh, to use the cell phone instead of getting on my horse and buggy and driving seven miles to town to use the pay phone. It would save me so much time, she thought. And I was the first uh, resistant to that, but she finally prevailed upon me and I decided to use the neighbor's phone. And then she said after time, look, it's taking too much time. Manya, that's the name of the woman, is, is having to wait so long for you to use the phone. Well, I had a backlog of phone calls that I needed to make because I didn't get into town very often. And uh, so she said, why don't you just borrow the phone? That again, took me by surprise. I said, we, we can't do this. This would be against the church rules. She said, well, just for a little bit. And I ended up caving into that suggestion. And uh, this is what this is when then in uh, several months of this later, when someone found out that we were doing this is when the ministry came down hard upon us. And as you said, this is something that doesn't work for a family and our stat status in the church to be doing this. It's OK for the other families that have the privilege, but it wasn't OK for us. And I so well remember when those ministers came over, Henry Maslin and, and um, 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 the Brewbreaker minister, they came and sat down with me in my furniture, little furniture showroom. 
And they looked at me intensely and said, how do you think that you can do this, Kenneth, and rebel against the practice of the church? Don't you feel, don't you fear hell and the flames of hell? I said, well, I'm only doing what you're doing. But that seemed like that didn't fly with them. They didn't seem to understand that discrepancy, that hypocrisy. They, 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 they just didn't even recognize that, that rebuttal that I gave them. And I saw it wasn't working. So I said, listen, it's just a borrowed phone. I'll, I'll, send, I'll take it back tomorrow. They thought I had bought the cell phone. That was the rumor. And said, no, I hadn't bought it. It was a, it was a borrowed cell phone. So the very next day, I was true to my word, and I took it back, got on my horse and buggy, and took it back to, to Manya and said, I can't use this phone anymore. But the, 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 the die was cast, and they were determined to, to discipline us. If I'd have been a Hoover, with name last name of Hoover or Maslin or Brubaker, they probably would have had us make a church confession, and it would all have been settled. But instead, they decided to excommunicate us for that. So myself, my wife, my oldest son and his wife and my second oldest son, all five of us were excommunicated from the Hoover Church because of that. That's really awful. Yeah. Because it's like it's like this thing of like you you have moving goalposts sometimes within groups of people where you can't exactly meet the goalpost. And yeah. you were doing your best to survive. You were doing your best to not just survive, but also thrive in living this kind of life where you're living a plain life and you're you're complying with all of these rules, but you know only certain people get to use the phone, right? Yeah, yeah. And these old order Hoover Mennonites are like the Amish in that they believe in the strict shunning or string maidong. Uh, bon and so, maidong is what we called it. Yeah, bon and maidong. And so after we were put in the band, we, we couldn't, my wife and I couldn't go to the community store any longer and buy anything. We had to send our, our young children who were not members of the church to buy stuff for us. And no one would come visit us. They would, no one would invite us over for meals. And it was a pretty lonely life. And at one point, we had a meeting with the bishop, Dan Hoover, and his ministers. And we asked them, what will it take to get us back in peace with the church? And how long will it take? Well, I can't remember what he said about what it would take. But he said it would probably be a couple years or more. And... From what we had seen with the way that they had treated this outcast Brubaker family, we knew it could be much longer than that. And we just felt it was hopeless. My son, who was married, also felt it was hopeless. He was married to one of those Brubaker girls that was from the despised family. And he saw no hope. So uh, my family was ready to go. I, for a long while, I was not ready to go. I didn't want to leave, but after all this happened, I, I was ready to go, and we learned through the budget of a community. A budget, by the way, if, if those don't know, is a newspaper amongst the plain people. That's sort of a gossip paper, but it's basically news from all all different settlements throughout the America, uh, and sometimes even Central America. Mm -hmm. uh, and we read about this church in uh, Smyrna, Maine. And it was more interesting to me, not, not in, in some ways it was not because they were more mainstream Amish 
they they actually fellowship with what they call a Michigan Amish fellowship located mostly in Michigan, but starting to branch out to other states as well. They had been a part of what we call the Christian communities, which was an effort by Elmo Stoll from Aylmer, Ontario, to create a hybrid Amish church down in Cookville, Tennessee. But when Elmo died of a heart attack in his 50s, everything kind of broke up and fell apart, and Smyrna decided to join with the Michigan Amish Fellowship. But they still had some remnants of the Christian church, or Christian uh, uh, community uh, mindset, and one of those was to wear the, the full beard like I'm wearing here. And that was a real interesting, that, that really, because I could never see going to an Amish church where I had to shave this off. I, I always felt strongly that this was the way we should wear the beard. Uh, yeah. And I guess, I guess I still do, though I don't take it from a biblical viewpoint. I just like it. Hey, uh, I mean, you're allowed to like what you like. Like, yeah. I think that matters. Mm -hmm. so I, but i had to compromise because the amish there were uh were they had the engines everywhere engines for their shops diesel engines they had engines to run their washing machines they had chainsaws but we had to do something so uh we decided to move to missouri uh to, to maine from missouri about 1700 miles away that was a big move and one of the things that i should bring in here this was I was, as you can imagine, I was disillusioned somewhat. I was shook up. I was still a Christian, but I was shook up from this experience of seeing this, this play out and how we were misused. And of course, you can't, you can't argue with the ministry. When, when they make judgments like that, there's no democracy. There's no redress. You're basically judged. And the only way to get back is to fall back into their good graces, which it looked like this was going to be a long haul. Um, but in, the, in those, those years, I had rather strangely befriended a man that took pictures for passport photos uh, in a neighboring town. And he took passport photos for different of the Mennonites because we had a settlement down in Belize that they would sometimes go to visit and they had to have passports. And the, the Mennonites, so they were very shy towards the camera. Uh, they did allow passport photos. And... So Lynn, short for Leonard, Leonard and, Lynn and I got to become friends because, well, I was sort of becoming lukewarm. You could say I was not nearly as strong as I had been uh, in my evangelical zeal. I still had a little bit left in me, but not much. And we just hit it off on so many things, especially photography, because when I was a teenager, I had wanted to be a photographer. And then, of course, that got basically squashed when I tried to join with the Holman Church because they don't have any cameras or any photography. And I had to sell all my photography equipment. So I hadn't delved into that subject for decades of my life. So when I met Lynn, it just sort of revived that desire. And I became interested and we just hit it off. He's just a jolly good old fellow. Uh, and, and Lynn, it turned out, was an atheist. And... Uh, that was my first experience in meeting a real true atheist in my entire life. I had met other Christians that I thought were maybe, or even Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses that had a version of their belief in God, but I had never met somebody that didn't believe in God at all. That was a very strange experience. Um, I'm seeing the question on the screen. Uh, maybe I should address that. Well, I, I think like, part of this is, is like people have questions about it 
So mm. like once you were shunned, would you be accepted into other settlements? Doesn't that go back to the whole thing? Like did those settlements, were they affiliated with one another? Yes. And, and there's very rare cases where they will accept someone, someone when they're disaffiliated with one another, they don't um, affiliate with one another. And so they might, it's, it's rare though. Right. So the dynamics, uh, I'll try to get back to what I was saying, but, but the, the dynamics here is that the, because the Christian communities, which Smyrna had originally been part of the Christian communities were also like the original Parisburg Amish church in Virginia, also trying to flirt and court with the Hoover Mennonites, if you remember. Um, they had a certain respect to the Hoover Mennonites. Uh, some of their people, had, their young people had intermarried, they had children, had family, intermingled with them. So they had to really tread those waters carefully. So our wanting to move to Smyrna put them in a bind where they had to work out something peaceably, even though the Hoovers would not would not work with the Smyrna main Amish or Michigan Amish as it were. They did not exchange ministers. They did not allow their young people to mix together, but there was still a certain amount of recognition and respect. So what happened was when we visited in Maine and asked if we could move there, they in turn sent the bishop and another minister out to Missouri to, to communicate and negotiate with a ministry in Missouri. And to the credit of the Hoover Mennonites in Missouri, normally they would have excommunicated us for moving to any, any other church but their own. But they had become, as the generations passed, they become a little more lenient. And they decided that they would allow us to move and that we could be with the Michigan Amish, as it were, in Maine. And that as long as we followed the church rules and eventually became full members, then at that point, they would be willing to lift the ban from us. Mm -hmm. and, Thank you. And, the, and the plus point was that when we were in Maine, we would not have to face the shunning. Yeah. That's so, a really positive plus point and, and yeah. very rare for that to happen, but good. Yeah. So back to my story with Lynn, he, he was an influence on me, although it, it didn't convince me at the time. In fact, once I knew he was an atheist, which he didn't really want to admit to me at first, because it wasn't his interest to try to change me. Uh, in fact, he had a great respect for my family. Um, but I got it out of him finally that he was. And, and my, my Christian evangelical side, though, was much smaller at the time as far as a driving force in my life did sort of kick in. And I decided, you know, I got to get Lynn to come to Christ somehow, some way, but, but we'll leave that for now. That's just how it was. We were just friends. But when we had to move, when we moved from Maine, from Missouri to Maine, Lynn and his wife helped us more than our own brethren did in loading our trucks. Uh, and I remember how that, well, first of all, he volunteered to drive my entire family with his minivan the whole trip up to up to Pennsylvania. I mean, sorry, up to Maine, 1,700 miles. And all he wanted was money for the gas, nothing for his time. And then I rode back with him and another man that was an agnostic person because we had a second semi that we had to load. Uh, and 
that was an interesting discussion on the way back from Maine to Missouri. We had the atheist, the agnostic, and the Mennonite. And yeah, you almost could have <laughs> should have had a recording about our, our discussion. I mean, I what I would have loved to be a little fly on the wall and just hear it. Yeah. But anyhow, um, when we got back, they the, the the church group did help us load that last semi, but they at you know five o'clock in the evening, which was their standard workday ending, they quit and they all left. And we still had stuff to load. And Lynn and his wife helped me load the last part, lost last little bits in and closed the semi door, uh, trailer door. And it was like 11 o'clock at night. We were working with flashlights. And Lynn turned to me and said, Kenneth, is there anything else we can help you with? And, you know, I almost get tears in my eyes just, just thinking about it now. You know, this man who is not even a believer in God was so helpful to me. How could he be so helpful? How could he be so kind and compassionate? How could he so willingly volunteer to drive my family without any pay other than the gas all the way up that way to Maine and back and still want to help me as much as he could. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't fathom that. I was in turmoil and confusion how someone could of his, of his, uh, of his uh, belief system could, could be so kind. We were taught that atheist people were ungodly people. They were mean, they were nasty. They were, they did bad, horrible things. But here, this man was just the opposite. He was showing more Christian love than my own brethren. And this was very, very unsettling to me. So that, that's the part that he played. And, and then after we moved to Maine, we did try to conform to the, to the church and for the most part did. But these, these thoughts kept nagging at me. And because we had little phone shacks in Maine, which took care of the cell phone problem, by the way. I never, I never got a cell phone again after that incident in Missouri, other than after, after I left the Amish completely. I never had a cell phone. I didn't want any cell phone. All I wanted was communication, to be able to communicate with business people and, and be able to be successful in, in providing for the family. But I also took the opportunity to call and talk with Lynn occasionally uh in the evenings and we would battle it out between each other you know as far as the existence of god and we got onto the point of evolution and that was okay evolution was almost the final straw that shifted my beliefs but not quite not quite uh i was a young earth creationist that's how the pentecostals taught it that's how the conservative mennonites and amish taught that everything was created in six 24-hour day periods, and on the seventh day, God rested. And sort of like the old saying goes, it's, I think it's from Baptist origin, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Or the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And so I, I had every argument in the book that I thought could just disarm Lynn and help him to see how foolish evolution was, evolutionary biology, that is, and that it was just a mess of confusion. But, but unfortunately, Lynn was a scientific nerd and still is today. And he just dismantled every argument that I had because I was arguing out of ignorance and he was arguing out of knowledge and scientific understanding. And he explained to me the basis of a, of a, um, of a theory and a hypothesis. I didn't even know what, what the word hypothesis meant. He had to explain that to me, basic understanding 
of scientific methodology. And, and I should say that I was becoming rather deviant in some allowance of technology, probably, probably started, the seed of it started in Missouri and I couldn't get away from it. I, I ended up having and obtaining and owning a little tablet, Samsung tablet through the help of a, a business person in, in the little town of Unity, Maine. And Lynn, uh, because I was so open with him, he, he became knowledgeable that I had this. And he encouraged me that if I have questions about evolutionary biology, I should watch the series on YouTube called The Foundational Falsehoods of Creationism by a YouTuber named Arn Raw. And there were 17 sections to that, that YouTube series. And I decided, you know, I really got to try to understand this so I can combat this properly to Lynn. And so I sat down in secret and watched all 17 episodes of this series. And that just, just blew me away, just blew me away. And I realized then that I did not have any ground and foundation for the, the, the biblical creation story. That evolution was actually the, what made so much more sense. It's almost like maybe you had your worldview challenged. And and I just wanna I just wanna point this out. Like for me in my life journey, I myself have had encounters with people that were atheists who supported me and helped me and showed me kindness when my own people didn't while I was still a believer. And when you mentioned that, and then like, for me, I feel like that perspective, experiencing that, that amount of kindness, it meant so much to me because it was, and it does, kindness really does mean a lot. Um, but it meant so much to me because it was like, I felt like I was lied to. Did you ever feel like you were lied to about atheists? Oh, absolutely. Because I felt like I was lied to about atheists. They were showing me kindness. They were showing me support. And then for me, like I had to like dismantle that internal belief that atheists are these terrible people. Mm -hmm. And then when I did that, that led me to a place where I could challenge my own personal beliefs. Like, would you say that's kind of what you're describing here? I would say very much so, yes. But it was not the straw that broke the camel's back. It was almost, it almost pretty well got me there, but it wasn't quite. And what mm -hmm. got me there, to answer that person's question earlier, what got me there was, uh, well, as I was struggling with this, 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 this uh, question of evolutionary biology, true or false, I, and then I began doubting you know, because because I was so trained to believe that evolution could not be true, because if if it was if evolution was true, then then there can't be any God. I do know that there are evolutionary people that believe and understand and support evolutionary biology who are devout Christians. I understand that now, but for me, from my fundamentalist background, I was not able to to. It was hard for me to to accept that there was a god if there was such a thing as evolutionary biology that it was true but i still was clinging i was clinging as hard as i could to my my hold on god i didn't want to let go and then i met a friend who gave me more resources to study and research who was also a free thinker and, and an atheist uh, right here in maine in our community and one of those sources was a website titled 
Why won't God heal amputees? And it's part of a larger book called How God Works, which I believe I showed you a picture of earlier. Yes. It's written by a man that has this YouTube or website. I think it's a YouTube channel. Maybe it's a website called How Stuff Works. It's just a, a fun a fun site where people learn how all sorts of mechanics and how, sort, how many things work in the world today. But he also is a non-believer and he and he wrote this had this website called why won't god heal amputees well that caught my attention because i i am a i am a amputee very small amputee it's not like i have a leg off or an arm off but um i had a table saw accident which is typical in the the settings i was in and uh I, I should I should preface this with an early conversation I had soon after my accident, and I'd come home to visit my parents and met one of my old buddies who had shifted from the Pentecostal church to a faith healing type church, still sort of Pentecostal, but they were in the belief that if you had enough faith in God, he could do anything. He would he could heal you. And he said, Kenneth said, if you have enough faith, God will put your finger back on your hand. And I told David, I said, no, that doesn't work that way. He said, yes, it does. I said, no, it doesn't. And, and, and we just argued until we couldn't agree at all, and we left. And I dismissed it because I just felt like God doesn't work that way. And I didn't think about it any longer for, what, 30 years or more. Until I came to this point in my life where I was already weakened in my faith, and I found this website, Why Won't God Heal Amputees? And... The methodology that Marshall Brain, the author of this article, uses is so amazing. It helps you to see that if there truly is a God, then all the excuses we make as Christians that, well, it's not his will, he's testing your faith, uh, it's not his will at this time, all fall flat because God, supposedly, if there's a God, he consistently decides that amputees will not be healed. And yet he could so easily show himself so concretely by at least once in a while healing somebody that is an amputee. Maybe a child that was born without limbs or a child that walked over a landmine in a war-torn country and had her legs blown off. And we, 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 we establish a prayer chain throughout the world, throughout the internet, uh, and, and it went viral. You would think that God, who can do anything, as the Bible says, would hear the prayers of at least some of us that are true and pure and faithful in our devotion to God and have no sin in our lives, that he would then heal that person. But it never, ever happens. Yeah. And, 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 this, and then he, he brought out, he asked a question, so is it that it's not God's will or would we willing to consider that God is imaginary? And that's when it hit me. I began to realize, what if God is imaginary? I couldn't hardly fathom it, but, but, I, but I had to ask that question of myself. And once I began cogitating and thinking on this, it became more and more clear how all the pieces fit together, that all the problems we see in the world, all the terrible disasters that we see that happen, so many innocent people suffering, so, intimate, so many innocent people dying, so many children dying of cancer, so many children dying of uh, many other sad calamities and and it, it just seemed like there would if you took god out of the picture it would all be working just that way we have some like 
observations from our listeners if you'd want to hear them. Sure. Right. I think they're in, in kind of like what you're talking about. Um, Marlene says, my mother is still into the faith healing mindset. She has beat herself up for 86 years over her need for glasses that she doesn't have enough faith. Otherwise, she would have perfect eyesight. She has spent 86 years in torture because she will not release this mindset. And then Seth says, it, it has always seemed like God's intervention has been selective. <laughs> Is that part of it? Well, the, it, yeah, I mean, selective to the point where he refuses absolutely and completely to, to never heal amputees. Or, for that matter, uh, permanent spinal cord injury patients. Or Down syndrome patients. Or severely mentally challenged patients. Uh, there were there was a story that I read where that someone wanted to see if this faith healer that had come to town to preach in these crusades was really had really the real power to heal people. They were healing people with cataracts, with hearing problems, with uh, supposedly cancer, uh, the, all these ambiguous type uh, ailments that people may have. So they decided to uh, they got some willing participants, people that were in wheelchairs that were, you know, paraplegiacs or quadriplegiacs or whatever. And they wheeled them into the meeting house, wheeled them right up front for the for the faith healing minister uh, with all this power from God to pray for them, to heal them. And guess what? He never even approached them. He didn't come close to even wanting to try to help them because he knew instinctively that God would not do anything for them. You know, uh, I myself live with complex and chronic PTSD. And one of the things that I grew up with was being told that all those symptoms of trauma that I have, I'm experiencing them because I'm not forgiving enough, because I'm not praying enough, because I don't have adequate faith, because I'm not submissive enough. Because I'm all of these things. There's a whole laundry list of things and reasons why. And in a way, I'd also like to say that it kind of blames people for their physical ailments. Like it's it's your fault, Kenneth, that God wouldn't heal you when you prescribe to that mindset. Mm-hmm. So like you have this you have this amputation of your finger, right? Mm-hmm. And when people tell you that you lack faith, it's not saying, it's not even examining the possibility of whether or not God actually wanted to heal you. It's literally saying that it is your fault that God won't heal you. Mm-hmm. Do you okay. agree or disagree and why? Well, I, I agree that that's their methodology, but it's not, has not sound reasoning because because uh, uh, if God wanted to show his power to me, then he could heal that and, and increase my faith. I mean, Jesus said, if ye have faith the, grain of a, the size of a grain of a mustard seed and say unto this mountain, be removed hence and be cast into the sea, it shall be done unto you. And, and I could say that I could have faith, but it would still not happen. Now, I want to put a little twist to that. Now that I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God at least I see no evidence for God, then here would be a good reason for him to heal me. I mean, I've told people if, if where is it? There it is. If, if, uh, 
if God would heal and restore my finger, if you would pray and all of a sudden flesh and bone would form out of my, my stub of my finger and form into a perfectly healed finger that I could use, not a prosthesis, but a real flesh and blood finger, then I would have to admit there's, there's a God. There's something out there. I don't know if it's the God of the Bible, but there's certainly some supernatural power out there working. And so why wouldn't God, God knows exactly what it would take. He's the, he's the creator of the universe. He knows exactly what it would take to convince me as an atheist now, a non-believer, turned away by hypocrisy and by the contradictions in the Bible and all the absurd laws and commands that are misogynistic, homophobic, and, and racist. And he know, But he knows exactly what it would take to bring me back to the fold, to bring in, to believing in him. So why wouldn't he use something like that of, of healing my, my amputated finger and, and cause me to believe that there's something out there? But he won't do that. He won't do that. Yeah, he won't do that. Why not? Because he doesn't exist. Because he is imaginary. God is imaginary, in my opinion. It's just God is as much imaginary as fairies are. You know, in my wife's family, they had this little saying that for children, as they were playing with their little blocks on the floor in the living room when we were having an evening time as a family, and little girls would roll up a blanket and make it, imagine it was a little doll because they weren't allowed to have dolls. But they would, they would just believe that this, this little blanket rolled up was a doll. We would chuckle amongst ourselves as adults watching them on the floor playing in front of us and say, well, you know, imagination is the greatest nation. Uh-huh. It, it really is. So, yeah. like, it sounds like, so you you left the, the fold completely in Maine. And, like, I see you wearing a plain shirt, like, all of these things. I even have a picture. Let me show the picture so everybody can see. See, this is Kenneth wearing his his plain shirt with his library here's a better picture where you can see his broad ball pants with like the buttons there's four buttons across the top there's a little cover that folds down when he opens them that's how you get these pants on and off and <clears throat> if you notice he has an entire library of books and then here we have a painting that was commissioned of him. This looks like a typical plain man, right? Except for the type of, of plain that I was, the older Ramish and the Yvetroy Ramish, none of that beard, none of that mustache. It would have had to be been shaved like all the way around to here. And he wouldn't have been allowed to trim his beard. So I want to ask Kenneth, like, we're going to, we're going to switch into like a little bit about this. Is it possible to live a plain life without it being religious affiliated? I think so uh, because essentially the Amish are different from the rest of society because of their strong cultural uh, practices. And it does in a sense, make a community, a, a little community within a community because of their sharing and caring for one another. And, and, and I will say that as a whole, that's something that I miss. I, I deeply miss. Uh, so, several years ago, my, my first Amish bishop, Sam Chuck, came to visit up here. He was doing church work, and he stopped in. And we had a pleasant conversation. Sam is a very uh, 
kind-hearted person. But when he took me off to the side in one of my, my old shop, he asked me sincerely, he says, Kenneth, do you miss the brotherhood? And I said, absolutely, Sam. I miss the brotherhood. It's something that the Amish have that the general society has very little uh, of, generally speaking. There is some groups. Uh, there's an organic group here in Maine, in my area, that has a little bit of community work, which is good, but nothing like the organized efforts of the Amish and how they work together. And I, I pondered that how that how how you could have a group uh, uh, so so dedicated to working together and just just separate from that the the undesirable parts of religion, the patriarchy, the uh, the uh, animosity towards uh, LGBTQ, um, the uh, just the sexism and 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 the unpalatable belief systems that come from the Bible. And I don't know how that can work because it seems like it needs some sort of a leader, some sort of a charismatic leader. And many times religion is, is the imaginary ingredient or the ingredient that keeps our imaginations alive and keeps us cohesive and together. So I don't know. I really don't know how to, how to do it. Um, except that I, I do know that in, in countries like the Scandinavian countries, of Europe that not while not being perfect, they have a much better society of working together and helping their people to be fulfilled uh, and a lower rate of crime than any place here in America. And that's really impressive to me. They, they would, I guess, what you be what you call democratic socialism. And mm -hmm. perhaps that's, that's a, a direction that we, we should work for. I don't know. I think like I'd like to read something from my book if you wouldn't mind hearing it. My book that I wrote. I don't know. Yeah, if you've sure. Seen it. Yeah, sure. Because I, I said this, the plain people. Being plain is not synonymous with being Amish. Being plain defines a group that practices a plain life, which may include plain dress, even if they're not specifically Anabaptist. There are many varieties of Amish and even more Anabaptists, but not all are plain groups. Some Anabaptists go to college. Some you wouldn't be able to define as Amish or Anabaptist by their dress or their mode of transportation. Not all Anabaptists are plain, and not all plain people are Anabaptists. So when you think of people who, for, for me... Like what I think about when I think of plain people is like people who choose to live a different type of lifestyle. They live a plain life. And and by doing so, like maybe they may shun some modern conveniences and they may embrace others. But it usually depends on like that person or that group or, or what have you. Like me, I may hold hold traditional to like some of the traditions that I grew up with. Mm. But those are mine, and I embrace other more modern values and more modern ways of living. Mm -hmm. And I think that has value because it, it is simply saying that sometimes we're allowed to live differently. And then when you have that lack of community, 
we're also allowed to, if we're allowed to embrace different traditions from our previous plain life or our Amish life or Anabaptist life, um, we're also allowed to embrace some of the traditions around community. And I have friends that I have built relationships with that if I were to say, hey, I'm moving, they would show up. Hmm. I have friends who I've said, hey, I'm, I'm redoing my bathroom and I don't know how to do X, Y, and Z. And they showed up. Hmm. You, you know what I'm saying? Like we, we get to rebuild. Maybe we get to rebuild community. That is one thing we know how to do. We know how to rebuild community. In the hmm. same token, like one community can't be it for everything because people all manage their religious trauma in different ways. Hmm. And so what we kind of need is we need a variety of communities that embrace people from all walks and ways of life and where they are in their journey with or without faith. Um, maybe more acceptance of people in where they are, but also being able to form meaningful connections because part of that also goes back to the theology when we're taught that atheists are these bad terrible people we can't even begin to allow ourselves to connect with people who identify as atheists because those people are just such bad influences and you know mm -hmm. birds of a feather all flock together right mm -hmm. well i i could say that uh i'm probably a pretty a sore thorn in the flesh to the Amish here because I still uh, follow some Amish practices and traditions of, of lifestyle. And the reason I do is because I did not leave the Amish like so many do because I wanted to go back to modern living. One of the driving forces for being with the Amish and the plain people, horse and buggy way of life, was to stay away from uh, fossil fuel use. And, uh, oh, that's, that's just about that, that question that came up by Marlene Brubaker. That's, uh, got to be serendipitous because that was just on my mind. I was just ready to talk about this. Um, as you remember, I became what I call an envir Christian environmentalist already in Tennessee. And that was my driving force for getting away from fossil fuels. Why I wanted to be part of the Hoover Mennonite church where there was no engines being used plus the fact that I just love the storybook way of life and the community and working together. Um, and so when I, when I came to this point in my life where I, I realized I did no longer believe in a God, I was shocked at myself. I was still dressing very plain. In fact, I came into the house to get a drink of water on a warm summer day, and I had my straw hat on and, of course, my beard and everything and my suspenders. And I looked in the mirror that was in front of the in front of the sink where I was getting a drink of water. And I looked at myself and it dawned on me, you know, I'm an Amish atheist. And I actually began to chuckle, but I had to stifle. <laughs> I had to stifle myself because I didn't want the family to say, Dad, what are you laughing about? Because I didn't want to tell them what I was laughing about. And I didn't want to lie. So I just kind of, oh, oh my goodness. And, and so, yeah, I, I, and, and I didn't want to go back to driving cars because they're using a, a, a toxic fuel that's destroying our planet. So what was I to do? Well, I just tried to make my own brand of Amish 
No, I guess that's why I call myself an Amish atheist. And I was, I thought that's such an oxymoron until I met a man who, the man who wrote this book here, oh, there it is, that here, one of my favorite books. Uh, he had, uh, before he became a non-believer or atheist, he had been influenced by the Quaker religion. And he actually appreciated the Quakers in many ways, loved to go to Quaker weddings and Quaker meetings. And he said that I just call myself a, a Quaker atheist. I thought, ah, well, then maybe I'm not so crazy, not so crazy after all. So maybe I can rightfully call myself an Amish atheist. So that's kind of been my guiding force. Now, uh, I have basically allowed the tradition uh, and and the, the, the convictions to be melded into my greater vision of a sustainable earth. And that's where I could address the question by this Marlene Brubaker, is it, I think? Yes. Uh, that I have definitely strongly latched onto anything that is sustainable and new technology, because I would have to say that at one point, I really tried hard to convince some people to go and drive horse and buggy, non-Amish people. My goal and mission was to get non-Amish people who were concerned about the environment to drive horse and buggy. And there were a few farmers in the area that were not Amish, never were Amish, but they farmed with workhorses in their produce vegetable operations. And I thought, surely I could convince some of them to, to not use their car except for long distance travel and just get a horse and a buggy. They're already using workhorses. They know the, they know the beat. They know the, how, to, how, to, how to deal with this. But I could convince no one. I just oh couldn't convince no one. I mean, when I drove long distances down to Belfast, Maine, to the Belfast Co-op, which was a health food store, 25 miles away. I did long distances, by the way. I drove thousands of miles with horse and buggy in my time. And uh, when I got there, they were just all enthralled. And one of them said, as they were feeding my horse, my sweaty horse with carrots and water, they said, this is what we're going to have to go to when gas prices get high. But by that time, I was really, really sort of... Uh, disenchanted with my efforts and I said to myself under my breath yeah sure it's going to get pretty have to get pretty damn high before you ever consider this way of life because it's so different I mean you, you you have to you have to get the horse in from the pasture you have to groom the horse if you're if you're concerned about the horse's health you harness the horse up then you need to take the horse out to the buggy hitch it to the buggy and then you slowly go down your way to wherever you want to go and it takes you 10 times as long to get there I mean, a 30-minute trip to Belfast in my car takes about two and a half hours by horse and buggy. And yeah. I know that because I've done it a dozen times with my horse and buggy. Yeah. And, 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 and you, you also got to, like, maintain, like, you got to, even on the days, if you're not going anywhere with your horse, you still got to feed your horse. You got to make sure your horse is well taken care of, right? Like, you yeah. still have things to do. Yeah. So, so I ended up after I met my present partner, uh, I, I, she would drive me around because I didn't have a license and we would take some short trips with each other. But I, I felt sort of bad that I wasn't doing my part because I knew how to drive. As you know, I had driven for the first part of my life. And then I had a hiatus with the Amish and older Mennonites for about 15 years of my life. And I cut out my driver's license. I determined I would never drive again. But here I was in this situation. So I decided, well, it would only be right and fair if I got my driver's license. So I begrudgingly went and got my driver's license. And I tell you, it was quite a, quite a sh culture shock, even though I hadn't known about driving cars and had driven cars in my past. 
having not driven for 15 plus years, it was scary. It was scary to be, it's one thing to sit in a car and be driven by someone. It's another thing to drive this two ton contraption down the road at high speeds in the highway. And, but I finally got over it. And then I finally purchased a car and it was a gas powered car, but I felt I had to do it. And I decided I would only use it, only use it when I needed to go a distance that I would normally have to hire a driver to take me. Sort of like what the pattern that the Amish were doing. But, but when I needed to hire a driver, I just hire myself. That was my thought patterns. And any other short distances, I would still hitch up my horse and go to town with a buggy. And I did that. So I consistently did that. Go to a local town like Unity or Thorndike, I would hitch up my horse and buggy or go to the local community market. I would get my horse and spring wagon and vi or visit my daughter who's married to an Amish man here in the community. I always would either use my bicycle or horse and buggy. I would never use my car. And I think this really puzzled the, the Amish people here because generally people that leave the Amish, they're all gung-ho to get the car and the electric and telephone. But I was just not following that pattern. So yeah, that's how I, I managed my life. But then, then I began to realize that uh, I started watching this technolog technological development with electric vehicles and electric battery powered lawn equipment. And I thought to myself, this is the answer. This is what's gonna help to, to clean up our society, create uh, clean and renewable transportation, solar and wind. And so I decided to sell my, my gas powered car and get an electric vehicle. And that was almost five years ago and I've never, never looked back. I, I very much like my electric vehicle and I, I'm convinced it's, it's a key, one of the key things that we can do is, as individual people in reducing our carbon footprint uh, by, by driving, selling our gas vehicles, gas or diesel and, and, and buying an all electric vehicle. And I become very passionate in that to where that I call myself an EV evangelist or EV enthusiast. That sounds, that's amazing though, because like you, you care about like the future, you care about future generations. And I think that's what comes across to me. Um, because you're, you're looking at how can we make this world better for future generations? How can we make things sustainable? How can we, we as people today work to do better? for our future generations. So the world is like still, you know, functional for our future generations. I think that's yes. amazing. Do you have any parting words? Cause we're about to wrap this up. Yeah. That you would like people to know. Well, um, you know, Christopher Hitchens, I don't know if you're familiar with that, that figure. He made the comment once, uh, it goes like this, take the risk of thinking for yourself much more happiness, truth, beauty, and wisdom will come to you that way. Oh, I like that. You know, like I've, that. Never, I've never had a tattoo, but I have a lot of friends that have tattoos. And I thought to myself, if I ever got a tattoo, maybe I would, uh, you know, have that on my back or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, another, another famous quote that I like is from Carl Sagan where he told his daughter once when she was asking him about if she'd ever see her grandparents again, that her parent grandparents that had died. And he, he sadly said he doesn't think so. And then he told Sasha, Sasha Sagan is her name. He, and she was just a little girl. He said, well, you know, it's dangerous to believe in something just because you want it to be true. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, oh, that's a really good quote. I like that. Thank you so much for your sharing and being here and being a guest and giving us the honor of hearing some of your experiences inside of Amish and Mennonite churches specifically, because it's been one one wild ride for you, hasn't it? It has, yes. One, one wild ride. Thank you yeah. so much for sharing. Um, I appreciate you. Thank you, everybody, for coming and listening and commenting. I'd like to remind everybody that sometimes it's good to go and approach the world with curiosity and embrace critical thinking about the things that you might be experiencing, the things that you might see. We appreciate you listening. We appreciate you commenting. Thank you to every viewer. Thank you to every guest. We couldn't do this without you. This podcast was hosted by Mary Byler. It was funded by the Misfit Amish and our Patreon subscribers. And as always, until next time, keep up the good work. Live your best lives and enjoy life. <laughs>